Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. nothing we can do about the collective stupidity of government other than figure out how to exploit it. This is an economy of one. Your beacon guiding you through the turbulent waters of the political economy. The market no longer is the invisible hand of mutual gain, but the choking grip of political self-interest. Liberty is not given. It must be taken. Let's take it back together today. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathman, CEO of Private Wealth Consultants and your free market voice of the U.S. Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, economyofone.com, economyofone.com, as is our Facebook, Economy of One on Facebook. Joining me now is Hans von Spakovsky. He's a senior legal fellow in the Heritage Foundation's Edwin Meese III Center for Legal and Judicial Studies, co-author with John Fund of the books Who's Counting? How Fraudsters and Bureaucrats Put Your Vote at Risk, and Obama's Enforcer, Eric Holder's Justice Department. He also spent two years with the Federal Elections Committee. We've talked to him several times. Hans, welcome back to An Economy of One. Well, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. I, I saw you on uh, Fox News. Uh, what was it last week? You was on O'Reilly or the week before? Uh, yeah, like I was on O'Reilly. I, I was on O'Reilly last week talking about um, the Jeff Jeff Sessions uh, recusal oh, yeah. and yeah. and uh, the the claims that he ought the, the ridiculous claims that he ought to resign as Attorney right. General. Right. That's right. I remember listening to that. Well, I wanted to chat with you a little bit tonight. You've you've uh, uh, written a few things on uh, the new executive order on uh, the travel ban. I don't know if that's the right word to use, but uh, uh, the 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 second revised uh, uh, travel order out of uh, President uh, uh, Trump's White House. And I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Now, obviously, they rewrote that to to uh, uh, compensate or work around uh, some of the. Uh, what was it? The Ninth Circuit Court uh, ban on the, on the first one. Um, you've obviously read through this. What, what do you think of the revised executive order here? Well, I'll say two things about it. One, I, I do think they revised to try to take care of some of the issues the Ninth Circuit raised. Although I will tell you uh, that I think the Ninth Circuit decision was totally wrong. Um, they. They ignored the immigration provision that gives the president full authority to do what he's done. But, you know, you got bad judges, unfortunately, throughout the uh, federal court system, and, and they had to deal with that. In, in essence, look, um, what they did was say, 
our 90-day temporary suspension of entries from these six countries in the Middle East and Africa, which are terrorist safe havens, um, it, they don't apply to anyone who's already got a legal right to be in the U.S., such as green card holders or others who, who may have already gotten visas right. to be in the U.S. It, it, it only applies to foreigners who, who are just now applying to get in. And that takes care of the due process problems that the Ninth Circuit raised and talked about. Okay, now, uh, it, it, it's been been uh, widely noted that uh, Iraq is no longer on the list. It was seven countries, now it's six. Right. Why did they take Iraq off? Well, in fact, they say in the executive order that they had had uh, negotiation with the Iraqi government, and the Iraqi government had agreed to increase its cooperation with the federal government of the United States in doing background investigations and vetting of uh, individuals who want to come to the U.S. And so they said they don't think that the 90-day suspension is needed anymore. And, and in fact, everybody should keep in mind the 90-day suspension is in order for the Department of Homeland Security to determine whether the current background investigations and vetting procedures are sufficient to ensure public safety and the national security of the U.S. for anyone trying to come in from these six countries. So it's really just kind of a, a pause for right. us to check the procedures and, and think of new procedures and, and get them in place and that kind of stuff to, to help the vetting process. Right. And look, they already took care of it with one of the countries, Iraq, and that's why it dropped to six. The, the other thing they did in this revised order is a lot, lots of questions were raised. Well, why these six countries? You know, there wasn't really an, expl an explanation. And they go into great detail in this revised order on each country, uh, pointing out why they were chosen. Three of them, by the way, including Iran, are state sponsors of terrorism, um, as determined by the Obama, White, uh, Obama administration, not the Trump administration. Right. You, you would think that's a pretty good reason why we want, would want to watch uh, entries from those countries. Well, you know, all of our reasoning changed, though, on November 8th. I mean, you, 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 can't, you can't have eight years of past reasoning if you lose the election. It's got to change, right? <laughs> Yeah, unfortunately, I'm afraid that's, that's true, and that's the way some of these liberal activist judges look at this. You know, one thing I wanted to ask you, because I was doing a little homework, uh, getting ready to talk to you today, uh, one of the, 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 the words that came up was the term refugee. Now, right. what, what, what makes a refugee a refugee, and what makes a refugee different than somebody else trying to get into our country? Well, refugees are given special status under our immigration laws. Uh, they are usually individuals who are fleeing uh, uh, different kinds of uh, persecution, you know, political persecution, religious persecution, mm -hmm. or war-torn areas. And there are special rules that apply to them. I mean, I, I mean for example, uh, there was all this criticism of the original order because uh, the, the order said that uh, priority would be given 
to refugees fleeing a religious persecution. And this was somehow taken as, as, as a Muslim ban, which, of course, is, is ridiculous. Um, but, in fact, that, that's part of federal immigration law. Individuals who are fleeing religious persecution are given priority in, uh, as refugees. Okay. I, I, you know, it just, you know, it, we, we get caught up in the the headlines and, and the stuff, and, and I've always felt it important to step back. And let's define our terms here, because I didn't really know what a refugee was. I mean, I knew it was persecution, but how do you be a refugee? Do you say you're a refugee? Do you clear, declare yourself? Or is it... I mean, is, do you have, have a, a, a public record of proce- uh, persecution? I mean, it, is a refugee a refugee because they call themselves a refugee? Well, uh, not necessarily. What happens is, uh, for example, if you are trying to get in the United States uh, and you are claiming under the uh, political asylum um, provisions of refugee status, yes, you have to declare to customs and other officials, you have to to verbally claim political asylum. Okay. And, and what happens then is that uh, officials inside uh, Department of Homeland Security, they have to investigate your case to determine whether or not you have a valid claim. And, you know, what's hap- what happened in the last few years of the Obama administration was that immigration lawyers and others were encouraging everyone coming in illegally to claim uh, refugee uh, status or political asylum status. And I think the estimates were that upwards of 80 to 90 percent of the asylum claims were fraudulent. Oh, wow. That, that's incredible. I want to switch gears a little bit. There, there's, uh, I don't remember reading this prior, uh, but I read a column today that talked about the new immigration order uh, creating a database of, uh, a public database of honor killings um, where there, there, there's been gender-based quote, gender-based violence against women in the United States by foreign nationals. What, what's This is the first I've really heard about this database. Is that, that uh, a big deal in this order, or is that uh, one more thing for the left to attack? Well, it's interesting you mentioned that, because I've got a piece that I've written about it that should come out in the next day or two. That <laughs> This was a little-noticed provision uh, in there, and it's got the left all upset. It, it, it's at the end of the order, and it talks about transparency. And in order to promote transparency, uh, the president directs the Department of Homeland Security, in cooperation with the Justice Department, to start regularly reporting on uh, honor killings uh, in the U.S., in other words, gender-based violence by uh, foreign nationals and, and immigrants, and also to start reporting on individuals who are um, uh, uh, charged with, convicted, or removed because of terrorism-related activities. This has all been criticized by the ACLU and others because they say it's, it's cruel. But that was actually the word they <laughs> used. It's cruel and and will be la- uh, be a way of labeling immigrants as as criminals. Well, it seems to me that uh, 
you know, normally the ACLU is all in favor of government transparency and access to public records, and I think this is a really good idea so that we actually can get some data on what kind of crimes are actually committed by uh, aliens who are in the country. I, I read somewhere one of, one of these people that uh, are against that clause saying that, um, and I, I'm paraphrasing, I don't remember quite what it was, but it, it, it uh, undermined the sanctity of uh, the Islamic or Muslim uh, family unit. And I thought, that's funny, because I, I would think if you're going to under, undermine the family unit, killing your wife or children would kind of mess that up a little bit. But, uh, yeah, uh, it, it does. But apparently reporting on such killings oh, undermines yeah. Yeah. The, the Islamic religion, which is it shows you the kind of crazy attitude that, yeah. that the critics of what the president is doing have. Yeah. Oh, real quick, we got about a minute left. Uh, I read something about Chris Murphy from uh, uh, Senator Chris Murphy from uh, uh, Connecticut saying, and I just wanted to get your quick reaction on it. Uh, he said Congress must pass this bill and block it now. I mean, apparently he's in favor of passing it, but he doesn't want to fund it. You know, he wants to. Uh, what's the thought? I don't understand con- congressional people at all. What, what's the the thought process? Is this one of those we got to pass it to see what's in it kind of mentalities or what? Uh, uh, listen, you're. Uh, I don't understand that either, <laughs> either. So I'm not really sure I can explain it. Oh, okay. Well, I just you know I, I collect all this stuff because uh, uh, you know people talk and nobody really listens, but the fact that they talk seems to to give them authority. So uh, anyway, we've been speaking with Hans von Spakovsky, senior legal fellow at the Heritage Foundation's Edward Mesa Third Center for Legal and Judicial Studies. Hans, once again, this has been a real honor for me and a lot of fun. I really appreciate you giving us a little of your time away from your family today and uh, look forward to chatting with you again soon. Well, thanks for having me. And, uh, yeah, I look forward to speaking to you again also. Thank you. Have a good evening. Coming up next, I'm going to take a look at the definition of a right. We'll talk about that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, I find it fascinating that a lot of the conversation around the immigration law, as well as health care, welfare, all the entitlements out there, the language that keeps coming up is rights. People have a right to. And many of these progressives are not too concerned about the constitutional rights of you and me as much as they are of extending the constitutional rights to people of other countries. So I got to thinking about it. What is a right? Okay, and what rights do we have? And what does the Constitution essentially do for our rights? Okay, now... Uh, the the uh, I go back to one of my favorite authors, Ayn Rand, and she talks a lot about rights. 
and a right is the sanction of independent action. A right is that which can be exercised without anyone's permission. So if you exist because society permits you to exist, you have no rights. Alexis de Tocqueville, talking about rights, says, I am aware of only two means of establishing equality in the world of politics. Rights have to be granted to every citizen or to none. Now, there's three basic categories of rights. The right to life, the right to liberty, and the right to private property. Now, rights are negative, which is an important distinction. They cannot take your life away. You have a right to it. No one can take it away. Your liberty, no one can take that away from you. Federal government fails every time, every time, when it tries to control us and, more importantly, control itself. The Constitution's very survival depends on its meaning of being predictable. It cannot be fluid. It can't be interpreted by different judges in different ways. Jefferson said, our particular security is in the possession of a written constitution. Justice Felix Frankfurter, leading liberal back in uh, the days of Thomas Jefferson and, and James Madison, said the highest exercise of judicial duty is to subordinate one's personal pulls and one's private views to the law. Now, when President Reagan was president, he had the utmost respect for the Constitution. On average, in his speeches, he mentioned the Constitution 16 times. If you look at his presidential papers, he's got over 1,200 references to the Constitution during his eight years in the White House. And another 113 mentions of the Declaration of Independence. Now that's serious referencing. He had respect for the Constitution. We need to stand up for that document, put it in the politicians' faces today, all of them, both sides of the aisle and the White House. This is not a living document. This is a foundation stone of our freedom. Speaking of Reagan, coming up next, Peggy Grandy is going to be joining me. She spent 10 years as the executive secretary to President Reagan after his time in office up until his death. We'll speak with Peggy next. Gary Rathbun, an economy of one. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Joining me now is Peggy Grande. She's former executive assistant to President Ronald Reagan for 10 years. 
from the time he left office to his death. She acted as the liaison between President Reagan and his staff, the public, local dignitaries, and world leaders. She's a speaker with the Leadership Institute, specializing in corporate and executive training. Got a new book out called The President Will See You Now, My Stories and Lessons from Ronald Reagan's Final Years, just released by Hatchet Books. So, Peggy, welcome back to An Economy of One. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me back. You know, last year here at CPAC, I mentioned, I mean, we talked a little bit about your experience with the Reagans, and, well, geez, you ought to write a book. <laughs> and uh, apparently I was a little late to that uh, revelation. <laughs> a book was in the works or something, so you got a new book out. I do. It just came out this week. This week. I read it last night. And the thing that I, I took away from this, and I don't mean to, you know, blow any smoke up your dress or anything, but <laughs> you started with the death of Nancy Reagan. Mm -hmm. You ended with the death of President Reagan. But in between, you know, it was great stories, but I didn't get any ego. I mean that as a compliment. I mean, you read some of these books, and it's all about me and, mm -hmm. and my experience and how great I was. And you're very humble through the whole book. And, yeah. and it was a very enjoyable read, Good. very informative. I did have one bone to pick with you, though. Oh, okay. Okay, Bring right, it. I can handle it. Right at the beginning of the book. <laughs> you know, I'm from Northwest Ohio, and anybody who says they, they don't like snow, <laughs> I, I, I got an issue with on that. Well, so. I brought beautiful Southern California weather here to CPAC, so you can thank me for that. I know. <laughs> so, uh, Haven't um, pulled my coat out of my suitcase, which yeah. is a good thing. <laughs> you know, I, I almost don't know where to start. There's so many stories, but, you know, the, the book is Your Stories and Lessons, from Ronald Reagan's final year. I, I guess one of my first question is, what, what's the most important lesson you took away from those 10, 11 years you were with the Reagans? Obviously, it influenced your life heavily. What, what's the most important thing you took away from that? It did. Well, thank you again for reading the book and taking the time to talk about it. Um, you know, there were so many elements of his life that changed my life. I think one of the things that I was most surprised at, especially as a very young person starting working for him with eyes wide open, not knowing what the big world yeah. was all about and being spoiled by sitting at the feet of somebody like this as my first job out of college. But I realized that this is what leadership can look like at the top, at its highest and best. And then here was this man who had a spine of steel. He had gone toe-to-toe -to -toe with communism all around the world. He had taken on Gorbachev, and in a lot of ways, he helped take down the Berlin Wall. And yet, that could coexist with this beautiful humanity of graciousness and goodness and kindness and civility and interacting with everybody from my kids to ordinary patriotic Americans um, and treating them with the same gracious respect that he did world leaders. I'm pleased that you said the word civility because I've said on air many, many times that we've lost that. Mm -hmm. we, we've lost the, the civility, even down to the day-to-day -day being a gentleman. Right. You know, and you have stories about that in there. Mm -hmm. But I got to thinking about this last night. I didn't have time to do any research. But did President Reagan ever call anybody a name? <laughs> no. He, he really, he didn't look at people that way. He never thought of himself as better than anybody else, nor would he ever look at anybody beneath him. 
he saw himself as fulfilling the role God had given him to play in this life. And if you were doing the same thing, we were all equal. And so he really never looked down on people because he didn't see himself as being anything better, just doing what he was called to do in life. And, and what a great example. And, and that just fascinates me because yeah. he didn't have to. <laughs> he didn't have to. You know, he didn't have to call anybody a name to get his point across. No, nor did he have to be rude or confrontational. He, Everybody knew he was the boss and was in charge, but he could still be gracious. He could be appreciative. You know, as a mm. young woman working for him, I always felt his utmost respect. Um, I felt his gentlemanly ways and, you know, everything from reaching over and holding my elbow as we would go up and down stairs, which right. I was in my 20s and he was in his 80s. And yeah. here was this man helping me. But just to have the awareness of the little people around him yeah. and treat them with gratitude and respect. The, the gentleman. Yeah, truly. So, <laughs> on the flip side, what's the funniest story that, that you have from your experience there that you can share? That I can share, right? Yeah. It's <laughs> a course. family show here. So. Uh, let's I, see. I did enjoy the part that he would never tell an off-color joke in front of you. Yes. You I know. know my husband sometimes would come home from the golf course telling a joke that the president had told, and I'd think, hmm, he's never told that one in front of me. say that in front of a lady. Right? So. But I appreciated that. That wasn't, you know, a sexist way of being. Right. That was just old-school gentleman, and I always felt, yeah, his respect. I would say the funniest moments um, took place maybe when we were at an event and we, we had a very tight timeline. You know, there was no margin for error. We had to watch the clock. And so there was one particular event when the event ended and the president was supposed to leave the stage, but he was supposed to leave to the band playing this, you know, great patriotic medley. Mm -hmm. And I look over um, as I'm in charge of that particular event and I look over on the band director who's supposed to cue the music so the president knows it's time to leave is just standing there in awe, looking up at the president, clapping his <laughs> hands with tears streaming down his face, completely lost in the moment. And so trying from across the room to get this man's attention, waving my arms and then ducking down in front of the stage and having to walk literally over and tap him on the shoulder and remind <laughs> him where he was sure. and what he was supposed to be doing and seeing Ronald Reagan the entire time watching me trudge across and back and forth, um, realizing that I had done my best and the best laid plans don't always work out but the music was cued. The president nodded to the applause and left the stage. <laughs> you know, as you tell your story, and, you know, once again, I, I smoked through it last night, so forgive me if I get some of the facts wrong. You were, I, I don't want to say enamored, but fascinated mm -hmm. with the presidency, the White House, even before you knew who Ronald Reagan was, yes. you know, from that, that yeah. level. Is that still the case today? I mean, you had the fortunate time frame mm -hmm. to be fascinated uh, with the White House and all of that stuff. Yeah. I don't know how else to put it. Right when Reagan came in office and then got involved when he came out. Yeah. What's your thoughts today? I mean, are you still enamored with politics and the White House and, and all of that kind of stuff, even though it's so different than it was under President Reagan. It is. You know, I was a, that little girl in Southern California um, who loved presidents and government and the White House and first ladies and was just fascinated by that, which back in the day, there weren't very many women, especially mm -hmm. little girls, especially in California, who were interested. So I was kind of an oddity, um, but it was just something that I had captured my imagination. And so to fast forward my life, to be able to interact not only with that world, but with this man in particular, I was a communications major in college. So to get to sit at the feet of the great communicator himself and see what communication can do to people and do for people was really remarkable. And yeah, I've never 
never lost that sense. You know, I live in Southern California. I come to D.C. quite a bit, and I hope I never get the day when I don't when I land in D.C. and don't just get a little bit of thrill and excitement from seeing the Capitol or the White House out my window. And I always make a point to not lose that. I don't I don't want to ever lose that fascination with it. You know, I, I want to put you on the spot, and, okay. and you don't have to answer if you don't <laughs> want to. So, uh, with such a, a a paradigm shift last election, and you know, I've been voting for presidents for a long time, and every election is the most important election of, of our history. You know, and it probably goes back to Washington mm-hmm. that was the most important election. But many people have peripherally compared the change that Donald Trump is bringing to. America and politics and the White House to a Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. You knew President Reagan better than all of us. What similarities can you draw between the paradigm shift we have today and the paradigm shift of Ronald Reagan from President Carter? Yeah, so I was very young when I was watching that, but looking back, uh, you know, I do think there are some parallels. And thankfully, our democracy in our country is strong enough and flexible enough to withstand the change of transition to power, you know, every four or eight years. And so we're very fortunate to live in a country that that happens peacefully. Mm-hmm. You know, Ronald Reagan in 1976 was not the party's choice. And even in 1980, he was not the top choice of the party. They wanted George Bush. And so we look back with such, you know, pride in ourselves, patting ourselves on the back, saying wasn't Ronald Reagan a great choice? But at the time, uh, people didn't necessarily feel the same way. And so I hope that Donald Trump will be given the same opportunity. I see a similarity in the way that they really have a finger on the pulse of the people. Ronald Reagan always talked to people. He didn't Mm -hmm. talk above them or beneath them. He talked right to people and not just people in big cities with big titles, but talked to people in the heartland of America where he was from that he continued to have a heart for. And so Donald Trump even you know, in his way, he's the blue-collar billionaire and somehow has resonated and connected with ordinary, hardworking, everyday, tax-paying people. <laughs> and you got to appreciate that. So yeah. in that in that way, I definitely see a similarity. And their, their um, commitment to talking to the people directly. Ronald Reagan didn't have Twitter. Right. <laughs> he had right. his weekly radio addresses, or he would look down the lens of the camera and come into your living room on one of your three stations on your TV. That's right. Um, That's right. But Donald Trump does it through Twitter, and I have to believe that Ronald Reagan would have been tweeting. <laughs> uh, I, I bet he, and I bet it had been interesting. He, he would have probably had a very funny, self-deprecating way of yeah. tweeting, but he would have gone right to where the people are, and especially the young people. He, even though he was a very elderly president, he certainly resonated with young people, and yeah. I believe would still today. I, I so. look at that, I read your stuff, and the leadership quality mm-hmm. is, I think, we've been lacking. It's easy to forget what leadership qualities really are, yeah. and uh, once they're gone, they're gone. Yeah, you know, so. I think we look back and appreciate it. And he never had a list of here's the things that you do to be a great leader. Right. It was right. just how he lived his life. And the way he lived and the way he led were completely intermingled. There was no separation between the two. There weren't two Ronald Reagans, one in front of the cameras and one behind. And I think we sensed and appreciated that genuineness and that authenticity Um, the way he spoke, the way he led, and it was just who he was. Yeah, excellent. Well, Peggy, great book. We're going to put it out there on the website. Easy read and a lot of fun. Terrific. Once again, very, very humbling. I really appreciate your time spending with us today. I know a lot of people are tugging on your sleeve trying to (laughs) to chat with you. And I look forward to talking with you again soon. Thank you so much. I appreciate you having me on. Coming up next. 
Arizona may be the state we want to move to. I'll tell you why next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. You know, I talk about money a lot on the show, and it's interesting how people view money. Money is is nothing more than a than a medium of exchange in, in our country today. In fact, all over the world, for the most part. And as, as a medium of exchange, it only has value if the person receiving that medium is highly confident that they can exchange that for something else they want. So, for an example, you want to buy, I don't know, something that costs $10, and somebody wants to sell something that costs $10. The only reason they will accept a piece of paper that says Federal Reserve note on it and a 10, meaning $10, is because they believe that they will be able to exchange that piece of paper for something else that they believe is worth more than the item they sold you for $10, or at the very least, equal in value to that. So it's just a an easy, convenient, portable way of exchanging stuff, okay? In and of itself, it has virtually no intrinsic value piece of paper that it's printed on uh, is virtually free. Okay, it's not, but for all practical purposes, it's virtually free. So, in 1971, Richard Nixon, President Richard Nixon, took us off the gold standard. Prior to that, that dollar, that $10 bill, could be exchanged for gold, at the exorbitant exchange rate of $35 an ounce. If only we knew then what we know now, right? We have bought a ton of gold at $35 an ounce and just sat on it till now. But we didn't. That's not the case. Doesn't matter. What happened after Nixon took us off the gold standard, it allowed us to essentially run massive deficits. Because we didn't have to have the gold to back it up in case there were redemptions of the currency. Now, you and I, normal, ordinary people doing our daily business throughout the the week, it it never occurred to us to take our, our paper money to a Federal Reserve Bank and exchange it for gold. But... If you were on the international market or a country that received dollars, you may want to exchange those dollars for gold. Well, prior to 1971, you could. After 1971, you couldn't. And we went through quite an interesting time in the 70s, uh, partly due to going off the gold standard, but due to other things as well. And uh, um, it took a while for the world to be comfortable with dollars that weren't backed by gold. And you can see why. 
you can see why. If if you had uh, $35 at that time, you could exchange that for one ounce of gold, and that one ounce of gold had more value to it, more intrinsic value than $35 of paper money. So Nixon was concerned, as many people were concerned, that foreign countries would exchange all their dollars, we'd lose all of our gold, and uh, then they, they wouldn't take our dollars in the future. And that probably would have happened. I'm not saying it was bad going off the gold standard. <clears throat> I'm not going to say it's good having gold off the gold standard. I'm just uh, making an observation. Well, this week in Arizona, the Senate committee passed a bill to treat gold and silver as money and remove the capital gains tax on the appreciation of that money. So by gold, prior to that, not being counted as money, if you bought it at, I don't know, $1,000 an ounce, (coughs) and you could later exchange it for $2,000 an ounce, the state would tax you a capital gain on that appreciation. Well, this law changes that. It does two very important things. It makes gold and silver legal tender for all debts, public and personal, in the state of Arizona. And because of that, it's now classified as money, and you're not taxed on the appreciation of that money. Two very, very important things. And we'll see if it goes through and becomes uh, law throughout the state. And if it does, it's likely to serve as a template to other states as well. Now, it'll take a while. We'll have to see how the economy of Arizona reacts to gold and silver. I think over time, the residents of the state will use um, gold and silver more than Federal Reserve notes eventually. I just don't know how long that will take. Which is interesting given the fact that coming this week, Janet Yellen is likely to raise interest rates on Wednesday. The odds are about 100% that she's going to raise interest rates, which makes the money supply tighter, makes dollars more expensive to use. So credit costs more. Now on the world market, we're the world's reserve currency, it will add value to those dollars because people will seek out those dollars because they pay a higher interest rate than they did the day before. (coughs) That being said, it makes our exports even more expensive, makes imports even more cheaper. So we're likely to increase the trade deficit because of that. Now, I'm not a big fear monger on the trade deficit. Trade deficit doesn't bother me, not as much as it does other people. But I think these two events this week are significant. Arizona approving gold and silver as legal payment, money, 
and the Federal Reserve raising the interest rates, trying to manipulate monetary policy. These are counterintuitive. I'm anxious to see how each of them works out. I know what interest rate increases are going to do to the economy, both here and around the world. That's pretty predictable. Gold and silver being used as money in Arizona, that's going to be an interesting experiment to watch. And we're going to watch it very, very closely. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.